Welcome to Navigating Lyme Disease for Patients and Doctors. I'm here with Dr. Daniel Cameron, and today we are on Episode 5 and focusing on Chapter 3 of his book, An Expert's Guide on Navigating Lyme Disease, where we talk about Babesia primarily, and in a following episode, we'll get to other co-infections as well. Dr. Cameron, thanks so much for being here. Very happy to be with you tonight. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions about Lyme disease is that it is a single disease. And I think people think, well, if I've got Lyme disease, that's what it's called. And the fact of the matter is, that is not the case, is it? Right. Lyme disease was named originally after Lyme, Connecticut, where they said, well, there's a spirochete. Dr. Bergdorfer uh, discovered a spirochete in the belly of a tick. And so, you know, everybody has the attention with one, uh, one organism, one disease, one problem. But they've discovered more than a dozen different things that it takes that are viruses, bacteria, atypical bacteria. Uh, and so I'd say uh, over time, it's, even though we might use the word Lyme disease, it's often referred to a tick-borne illness. So whenever you're Lyme, you've got to remember that, that there's other bacteria to keep in mind. And so today, I think uh, you wanted to ask more about this particular parasite called Babesia. It's hard to believe that you're getting bit, you think it's a bacteria or a virus, and you just overlook that a tick could have easily introduced a parasite. And that's the thing. Another thing that I think is also a big misconception is so much of what we're talking about when it comes to Lyme disease, or how we think of it, is that it's actually a parasite in many cases that's introduced into the body. Isn't that right? Yeah, a parasite, you know, we normally know malaria. You know, in Africa, and that you don't normally have to think about malaria. Uh, and then, or you might think of parasites in the gut that you, you might pick up something and so you take a stool sample to the doctor. But that's more of gut issues, you know, diarrhea issues, stomach pain. But this particular parasite is in the blood. So when that parasite is in the tick, and it bites you, it would like to go to the red blood cells and might stay as a parasite of the red blood cells. In fact, if you're sick, sometimes it's so severe you're in the hospital and they can actually see the Babesia parasite in the red blood cells under the microscope. And if it's that bad, often it breaks up the red blood cells and you end up with hemolysis, might end up with severe anemia, that is also considered a deadly type of a, a presentation. And uh, it's just that there's so many other people that have Babesia where it isn't caught in the ER. It's not caught in a hospital. In fact, they're not sick enough to go to the hospital. And so they, uh, but they still have a problem. It's, it's hard to identify the Babesia. It's a parasite. You just can't see it so easily in the red blood cell. So talk a little bit about what Babesia, what kinds of symptoms we see when somebody has contracted uh, the Babesia parasite. Well, some doctors focus in on that first presentation, that first time in the ER where they're, they have severe anemia, the red cells are breaking out, they might need life support, they might be in critical care, those kind of things. It's just that um, 
if you don't notice that, then it it's driven by the same immune system, the same fight or flight that you see in Lyme disease. So you end up with a very similar list, and you're sitting there thinking, is it Lyme? Is it Babesia? Is it Anaplasmosis? But you run into like, is it, you get into the immune system where it's so active, people are typically fatigued, they can't sleep, they have poor concentration, they have head pressure, lightheadedness, uh, joint pain, everything we're talking about. And so many of the symptoms, when you stack them all up, are the same. And now Babesia is frustrating is that just when you think you got to worry about Lyme and, and that's it, you can have both infections at the same time from the same tick. And all the focus is on the Lyme part, you know, the Borrelia part. But that patient's sitting there with Babesia at the same time. And that's part of their illness, part of why they're sick, part of why they're, uh, they're, they're frustrating you because the doxycycline isn't working. And that is a, a really big issue in terms of, I imagine, why so many patients go so long with symptoms, even though they may be being treated for one symptom uh, or one disease state, Lyme, they may not be being treated for for uh, Babesia. Is that right? Yeah. yeah the, there's a, um, a focus for some doctors on just that first week. But there's plenty of people who have only, never acutely sick, they just have a PCR, which is a DNA test. Then they have antibody tests. Uh, but they're not that reliable, so you get people who don't have any of those tests. They don't see it on the red cells, they don't see it on their DNA or antibodies. In fact, there's, there's a problem because the Babesia is in the red blood cells, in, or at least in the in the liquid the serum, and when you draw blood, donate blood, the only way you even know that person has Babesia is because they donate blood and the recipient gets Babesia from the donor. And so it's a so it, we do know through that mechanism that you can have uh, Babesia in your body and none of the tests show it, and you're sick, and you're sitting there thinking. Why doesn't doxycycline work? Well, it doesn't work for a parasite. So talk just a second about the difference between what you're terming as Lyme disease versus what you, Babesia. Well, uh, Lyme disease proper is that Borrelia, that spirochete. But in a broader sense, when a doctor says, uh, when a doctor says Lyme disease, they're usually referring to someone sick where they think it's Lyme disease. But where you've been in the field for a while, you realize that there's like a cesspool. There's over a dozen things in that tick. And so we kind of loosely use that four-letter word, you know, L-Y-M-E. And it's a four-letter word partly because it isn't uh, very nice to have it. But, you know, today I'm referring more to one of those infections that are in a tick. And so it's a it's, it's just time to focus in on how important uh, just one part of that Lyme disease umbrella term is, is and that's Babesia. So for a patient who has maybe even been diagnosed for Lyme disease, 
who's not getting better. The doctor doesn't quite know what to do. How do we help them to find out if Babesia is an issue? Well, how I, how I approach it is is if you have a lot of sweats, it is a parasite. Or went through sweats and they cleared up, you might think about it. You might think about it if they have air hunger. And that's, of course, a tough uh, thing to diagnose because they always think that's anxiety. Um, you have to be aware that half the people don't have sweats, so you still have to be thinking about it. And um, I usually find I don't worry too much about Babesia if they don't have sweats, they don't have air hunger, and they get better in three weeks. But even without the uh, sweats, if they're still sick and it's a month has passed, two months passed, you're trying and you're trying other kind of uh, antibiotics like Zithromax, uh, or you might be trying uh, the amoxicillin family, then think about Babesia. Or if they're really sick, within three weeks, I, I start at least uh, being aware of what else is in a tick uh, and make sure I, I at least look into Babesia. And, you know, fairly often I end up treating someone if if I don't like the progress I'm making with treating for a, a spirochetes or treating for some of the other bacteria. On the other hand, there's the doctors who may have found Lyme disease, found spirochetes, but have not found Babesia, and it turns out for the patient that they're working with that is an issue. How do we help them to find that more easily or to consider it more often? Well, there's an assumption that if you have Lyme disease or at least tick-borne illness, um, sometimes they say Lyme disease and tick-borne illnesses, is that if you um, if you're sick and continue to be sick, instead of only um, giving up or saying, well, one out of three people are sick, is that looking again at some of the other things in that tick, uh, you'll uh, find that uh, you're missing an opportunity to treat somebody. It just so happens that this is totally different, an unexpected parasite uh, at that you know people kind of miss that golden opportunity to um, buy the treatment that's going to work instead of just writing them off. I think the other thing that we should talk a little bit about is a broader range of symptoms that occur with Babesia. So give our audience an idea of the range of symptoms, understanding that some present, some don't, uh, and it's a case-by-case basis. Well, I should mention that one of the reasons doctors don't go very far with Babesia is that it was first thought to be asymptomatic. That is, they don't have symptoms. So no matter how many symptoms you had, they always said, oh, that's asymptomatic Babesia, that's all you got. Uh, but in practice, if you look, you're going to find an awful lot of people who are chronically sick where asymptomatic doesn't apply. They're, they're symptomatic. The traditional treatment for spirochetes and Lyme is aren't working. So if, if you look at that, the kind of obesity patients I see, their immune system is busy. It's been busy for some time. And that's where you're, where with that fight or flight type presentation, that's where that fatigue pops up in almost everybody. They're too wired. They can't sleep. They wake up tired. 
there's so much going on with the neurotransmitters with that kind of illness that every mood buttons turn up. So they often will say, well, I don't know why I have rage. I don't know why I have anxiety, uh, sadness, uh, um, despair. Uh, the sensory system is turned up. The, all the neurotransmitters for being light sensitive, um, sensitive to hearing, sometimes even eating cold. There's something called autonomic nervous system, which we talk about a lot. You know, they sometimes call it POTS, uh, positional orthostatic tachycardia. Even that's off. And sometimes, you know, everybody thinks, well, Lyme and all the tick-borne illnesses are joints. We surprise how often the joints aren't even the biggest issue, and they might be an issue, but uh, it's mostly these psych issues, sensory issues, and uh, uh, type fatigue, sleep. That uh, and plus there's head pressure, like up here, there's sometimes pain around the eyes. Pretty much the same list you might see with the traditional Lyme. It's just that it's a, just a parasite, just a different way of getting to the same illness. And the issue becomes that even though they may be presenting the same way, the treatment is very different, isn't it? Yeah, the, the this parasite um, in the bloodstream, you know, from Babesia, there's treatment. Now, it used to be clindamycin and quinine. Quinine, a lot of people have heard about quinine for malaria, but quinine had a lot of side effects. A lot of hematology problems, and and uh, clindamycin itself had a fair amount of diarrhea and problems. So, almost half the people who took that for Rabesia got fairly sick from the treatment. So, there's a Dr. Kraus who, years ago, with a lot of the colleagues, found that if you treat with a different combination, they did much. They, or they tolerated it well. They did as well, but boy, they could just take it and, hard, and so not suffer. So that's where you run into something called the tobacone, um, which is in the field been used a lot for malaria. It's also used when someone travels to Africa to prevent malaria. And they had a lot less side effects than this uh, other malaria medicine, but the one that you take once a week called methylquin. So in America, they they advertise, they, they market the tobacone as malarone and mepron. Malarone is a pill that has 250 milligrams of the tobacone in and some provital. Mepron is pure tobacone. And so I tend to use the the malarone more because it's a pill, it's a little lower dose, 250, and then I go up if I need to. Some of my colleagues often start with a teaspoon of a tobacone, which is 750 milligrams. So, you know, I've done both. But the convenience of a pill versus this yellow murky liquid, a tobacone, um, it's a great way to start for me knowing I can always go to the higher dose later on. And since I often have a lot of people I intervene early on, I find that um, it just is better and simpler and straightforward to always remember that there's a simple pill alternative to it. It's also generic, but it's been on the market for so long um, that 
you know, so do like the good RX, you can get it for about 110 bucks for a month, you know, two a day. It's two a day, whereas prevention of malaria is once a day. So that, you know, so sometimes it's not covered by insurance because they say it's travel medicine. But still, two times a day with good RX is 110 bucks isn't bad, um, especially uh, for a whole month. So that's a. Uh, that certainly helped a great deal. It used to be two thousand, and hundred bucks is a lot better to man more manageable. Just to refresh, we're on chapter three: Babesia and other co-infections. And on topic two, one of the things that you mentioned is that Babesia is more common than we think. Talk a little bit about the, how common it is. Well, there it used to be that people would focus in on some tick things called Ehrlichian, E-H-R-L-I-C-H-I-A, and anaplasmosis. Uh, but Babesia is probably at least as common. So, you know, maybe as many as a quarter, a third uh, could have Babesia in there, in that, in that tick. Now, how many are sick? Uh, there's certainly plenty that are sick. Uh, now, I keep talking today about Borrelia microti because I'm on the East Coast. I'm in New York. I practice in New York. Uh, but there's also uh, plenty of uh, Babesia on the West Coast. But they have a particular strain called Babesia duncani that they identified. But the way ticks are is they don't cooperate. They don't stay in one place. If you identify it, Lyme and Lyme, Connecticut, it's certainly everywhere else. And if you identify Babesia microti in one area, they, they, they're mixing up more than you think. So the chance of getting Babesia are much higher than one would think. You know, you think it's rare, but it's not. How many people have some form of Babesia and never have an issue that they are aware of? Asymptomatic, as you mentioned earlier. Well, I think um, the original studies always said that one out of three Lyme patients treated with doxycycline or a standard treatment were still sick years later. So those are the patients I target the most. If they're if they're sick, oftentimes the missing link for those patients is uh, Babesia. But I'm sure there's some Babesia cases that are asymptomatic because they're, um, you know, they they wouldn't be seeing me. Now, one of the reasons I know they're out there is that they're people who are screened by the blood bank and are healthy. They they, they completely pass the blood bank. They Their blood's in the blood supply, and the doctor uh, tra- gives a transfusion, and the, uh, the, the child gets uh, Babesia or whoever the recipient is. When you look at the East Coast and the West Coast versions. Are you aware, aware of any major differences in how the two present? Well, uh, the people on the West Coast says that their Babesia duncani is harder to treat than the East Coast. But I could tell you that there's plenty of people on the East Coast where it's a challenge. Uh, they might have to get retreated. You know, They originally say, oh, 10 days works. Well, 10 days of treatment for Babesia works to get rid of the parasite from the red cells. But that uh, I don't find that 10 days is enough for a, a symptomatic patient. Uh, now, if they get better quickly, it's great. But uh, 
I often have to go longer and uh, and and alpha have and alpha have to treat Lyme at the same time because that that tick has more than one thing in it. Let's talk about a, a couple of cases that you mentioned in uh, the in chapter three. The first one is topic number one: the eighty-five-year-old man dies after a sudden onset of hearing loss. Talk a little bit about how Bavisia brought this on and its role in his death. Well, in his case, is that he was quite sick. He had some uh, liver function tests on it, but they found it on a bone marrow biopsy. So in this case, they didn't just see the, the Babesia and the red cells. They saw it in terms of what they call tetrads. It, a tetrad is uh, finding you see in malaria. It just so happens the same thing as seen in uh, Babesia. And uh, there is a, another uh, two cases that were in another part of the book where the person left the United States, went to, out to the Asia, and they thought those tetrads were there, that it must be uh, malaria. But after extensive workup, they realized, oh, no, that was uh, someone who caught Babesia over here. And uh, and they, it turned out they needed treatment for Babesia rather than malaria. When we go back to the gentleman who died of hearing loss, talk a little bit about what your understanding of is how the disease of how the disease progressed and went from him being fairly sick to losing hearing and then dying. Well, sometimes uh, when they're really sick acutely, where it's in the red cells, it's the whole system is in trouble. So that's why it's a uh, you know you could die. So I think if you look at the issues in that that were outlined in the book is that he ended up with renal failure, liver failure, uh, bilateral pneumonia. And so it's, uh, it seems like quite a few things were happening uh, that they documented in the, in the case study. And uh, within 60 hours of admission to the tertiary care center, he died. Now, he, besides the antibiotics, or rather the antiparasite medicines, that they they can do what they call exchange transfusion. That means they can put the blood in and take the blood out, but that's fairly difficult to tolerate. He didn't tolerate it, and he he um and ended up dying from Babesia. So that that type of death uh, doesn't happen very often, but it certainly gets everybody's attention. I'm uh, addressing today uh, that. Yes, that's an important topic, but there's so many other people in trouble that uh, aren't in the hospital. In regard to the hearing loss, is that a common uh, symptom of Babesia? Well, I didn't address that much uh, in, because hearing loss shows up in Lyme disease also. Now, they haven't really studied hearing loss as much as you'd like. There's also a fair amount of tinnitus. So... With the hearing loss, it's hard to tell. Was it purely Rabesia? Uh, was there Lyme involved? Uh, there just isn't enough research in these areas to find out whether the hearing loss um, is related or not related. And, then, and also, if there is hearing loss from Rabesia, what, what's the cause of it? Why is it, uh, why is it an issue? Uh, in this case, they, um, you know, that may have been the signal that this patient was in trouble in the headline. But it uh, turned out that uh, that he deteriorated, and, and at 85 years of age, he passed away. 
One of the things that you mentioned in Topic 7 of Chapter 3 is that geriatric cases are rising. One of the things that surprised me is that between 2006 and 2017, there were over 19,000 cases um, that were Medicare had had, not, had noted as beneficiaries of Babesia. What's going on in the geriatric population that makes this, I, I, I don't think it's common, but as common as it is? Well, I think there's a, an awful lot of the elderly um, have tick-borne illnesses. You know, the, the biggest groups tend to be the elderly and the, the pediatric age range. And why there's 450,000 cases of Lyme in uh, every year in America, well, even if even if 10% have uh, have Babesia, uh, that adds up pretty quick. And so they're showing through the Medicare database that physicians are documenting Babesia uh, and billing for Babesia. Now, because this is big data, in nearly 20,000 cases is they're not pulling the chart to see all the different variety of, uh, of presentations. I'm, I'm just reporting what I see from the literature and my experience with Bubesia. So it'd be nice to see, uh, that topic of geriatric Bubesia be explored further because, uh, you know, plenty of elderly, they write off some illnesses as something else. Uh, but if a Bubesia is there, that's a pretty simple, uh, uh, add on to someone's uh, treatment, especially if they've been chronically sick. You know, we've talked a lot about geriatrics, but the other side of the coin is what's happening with newborns. And you've got a couple of examples of that. Let's talk about that. I was talking about the blood supply. And in this case, the uh, blood supply, um, there was somebody, uh, well, a baby in a, a neonatal ward who got uh, Babesia. And they, baby hadn't left the neonatal intensive care unit. They hadn't left the hospital. And they found out that the baby had blood. So they went back to the blood donor, who was a young man in their 20s who was healthy. And that, that young man was healthy, but... Uh, they had split the blood up so that actually three babies actually got Babesia from that same donor. And uh, it, so that was a, a good example of how uh, we have to worry about uh, people who aren't as sick as they think they think. And I wanted to mention uh, one other topic, which was, um, it's in a different chapter, which was um, two mothers who delivered babies, but in their last trimester, they had a Lyme rash. They got treated for Lyme rash. They did well for Lyme rash. The babies were fine, but a month after the babies went home, they were sick and came in with Babesia. And they knew it was Babesia because the red blood cells were full of uh, Babesia, uh, a lot of parasites in the red blood cells. And so I always use that as an example that we don't know a lot about pregnancy. Uh, we know that we can treat the Lyme, but we don't have any treatment that's accepted for Babesia. So fortunately, uh, the babies were born with the Babesia showed up. I also find it's rather interesting that that we always think that every 
tick-borne thing shows up at the same time. In this case, the Lyme showed up, and then a few weeks later, then the Babesia showed up. So I always am concerned that that Babesia may be why some people relapse uh, six weeks, eight weeks after their treatment for Lyme disease. What occurs to me from that standpoint is that if you have somebody who's been treated for Lyme disease, the umbrella, and they seem to get better, and then a month or so down the road, they're relapsing, that's probably a time to look at Babesia as a potential cause. Yeah, they, you learn a lot from uh, the literature. So that's why I write blogs, I'm publishing blogs all the time, because I'm digging in, you know, into the weeds of what that author has uh, discussed. And so it's sometimes I learn more than I would imagine that helps me in my practice. And so uh, because I've written 600 blogs and, and counting, you know, a lot of these things that I've been learning, you know, by reading, uh, I share blogs, but they kind of get lost. And so I, because um, the way Facebook is and other places, if the feed moves, moves, moves. So this book is trying to collect the highlights of the 600 blogs, but it's still learning exercises. I put all these together. I'm still learning. I'm still humbled by the disease. And Babesia is, is fascinating because it's, uh, it's misunderstood, but, um, I'm, I'm out there uh, with uh, keeping discussing what I read, discussing what people have studied. Um, oh, one more thing about the Krauss, that, Dr. Krauss that I mentioned. He, very from the very beginning, found that if you have Lyme and Babesi at the same time, your illness is more severe. So that was right at the beginning. So that makes sense. Two different illnesses, two different presentations, and that kind of thing. And so... Um, you know, I'm I'm learning as much and by putting this book together as uh, as any reader might, and uh, still humbled by the illness. Let's wrap up with this. <clears throat> From a physician standpoint, Lyme disease, the umbrella, with all its different presentations and underlying uh, spirochetes or uh, with Babesia, it's a puzzle, isn't it? What do you think a physician needs to think about in terms of the puzzle of Lyme disease? Well, I think that um, so often they teach like three or four facts, you know, that that it's a bullseye rash when there's so many other types of rash. Uh, there's, uh, they mostly talk about Lyme in uh, medical treatment, medical education, but there's, they often overlook that there's diversity of things in a tick. And this initial assumption that three weeks is three weeks and that's all you're going to get and they'd be fine is works, but doesn't work for a lot of people. And so if you just say, well, gosh, I don't know enough, you know, there's plenty of things coming out. Uh, it wasn't taught in medical school, or at least not very far. And just a matter of um, revisiting the topic will go a great deal. It's not that difficult. This kind of book, when you put it all together, maybe a lot of pages, but it's a there's just an awful lot that that's in the literature that's available that you can count on. You know, a lot of times they'll say, "Well, you shouldn't do too much unless you do evidence based." Well, this book is evidence based from top to bottom, and uh, 
And so it's a good starter to like, you know, move from section to section, you know, just read the book from cover to cover and, and, uh, you know, take it on, you know, bring it on. It's so satisfying to, uh, understand even just Babesia, you know, all the different uh, things written about it. It's there. It's not just a mystery. And, uh, and I, I, that's all I encourage. Revisit the issue. Dr. Daniel Cameron, you are the author of An Expert's Guide on Navigating Lyme Disease. And I have great admiration for what you bring to the table for physicians who really didn't have the, in all likelihood, the amount of knowledge available to them in medical school that you bring to them through this book and brief summaries that lead to uh, blog posts and other things and and source material. Uh, it, it's a great asset for a physician who's dealing with Lyme disease. Yeah, there's so much uh, that's available that scientists and doctors, clinicians have been uh, writing on this subject that it's so rich that uh, it, it's always a pleasure to share what I read and uh, you know, but it's still built on all these researchers and everything they've been writing. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniel Cameron. We will see you on the next episode. Thank you.